great to worship with you today. Let's do it again next Sunday, okay? Why don't you come back and uh, Christ will be risen and we'll rejoice again just like we will on that forever day. Hey, it is time for Children's Church, and so if you're pre-K through fifth grade, we'll see you guys and girls later on. Go have a good time. Give a few high fives on your way out or just run for it. Either way is fine, and we'll see you guys after church. If you have your Bible with you this morning, would you go ahead and open up to the book of Romans? And we're going to be in Romans chapter 5 today. And if you don't have a Bible, there should be a Bible in the pew rack in front of you. I'd encourage you to open that up and follow along with us. If you're new to the Bible, you'll find Romans chapter 5 on page 1000 in that black Bible. And uh, the chapter numbers are the larger numbers, so you'll look for that large number 5 on page 1,000. Then the verse numbers are the smaller numbers, so after the number 5, you'll see smaller numbers 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6, and that's where we're going to be. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11 is where we're going to spend our time together this morning. Uh, Have you ever found a message in an unexpected place? or received a message from an unexpected source. Of course you have. And it's happened to my family several years ago. Our daughter Emma came running in the house out of breath and alarmed. She was maybe about eight years old. And she yelled at us, Mom and Dad, Fred can talk. Fred was our neighbor's basset hound puppy. And we were immediately locked in on this story. We don't know what's coming next, but it's going to be great. So uh, Emma explained. She said, I was walking up the driveway, and I heard a voice talk behind me. And I turned around, and there was no one there but Fred. She was as serious as a human being can be. And so we asked the question that you're also thinking right now, what did Fred say? And with zero doubt and complete sincerity, she said, Fred said hamburger. (laughs) (laughs) Have you ever tried to eat a laugh before? Because that's what we had to do in that moment. Look, one of my thoughts was, wow, a dog has developed the ability to communicate through human language, and its first word is hamburger? What a dumb dog. Probably true to the breed, right? Uh, You you wouldn't expect a soliloquy from a basset hound, but uh, nevertheless, we got hamburger. Well, while Fred was ultimately proven unable to speak English, it's true that we often find messages in unexpected places or from unexpected sources, and it's my contention that Easter is speaking to you. And when I say Easter, I I don't mean the holiday with the traditions and the decor, though I love all of those things. When I say Easter, I am referring to the events that created the holiday. So it's the gospel story that though we were sinners against God, deserving of judgment, God the Father gave God the Son to die on the cross for our sin. And three days later, he rose from the dead, and all those who turn to him by faith are forgiven of their sins and given eternal life, and God the Holy Spirit takes up residence in them. That's what I mean by Easter. The events 
that make the holiday are a message that encompasses the believer's life. And here's the message of Easter to the believer. It's a message of love that saved you, of life that awaits you, and of joy that defines you. Easter also has something to say to those who are not followers of Jesus. It's an invitation to a love you've never known, a life you can't create, and a joy that never fades. Now, this year we've been studying the book of Romans on our Sunday mornings, and today we land on the perfect Easter Sunday passage. Here in Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul is teaching the church in Rome the meaning of the death and resurrection of Jesus. What does the death and resurrection of Jesus mean for me as a believer? So my goal today is for you to hear the message of Easter and be glad. I'm aiming for your emotions today. I want for us what this passage wants for us. Paul wants us to rejoice in our salvation. Easter has three things to say to us this morning. So I want you to follow along with me as I read from Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 6. The Apostle Paul writes this. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have now been declared righteous by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. Easter is speaking, and it has three things to tell us this morning. The first thing Easter has to tell you today is this. It's that our past is defined by God's love. Our past is defined by God's love. In verses 6 through 8, Paul uses past tense language to describe how utterly remarkable it is that Christ died for us. Look at verse 6 with me. Paul says this. He says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. So he begins by describing who we were. And what does he say? He says we were helpless. Now, you might have a different translation of the Bible, and your translation might say weak or powerless or without strength. But... Paul isn't talking about our muscles, is he? Paul calls us helpless in the sense that we are powerless to do anything about our sin and its penalty. Maybe we were moral. Maybe we were even religious. But the overriding description of who we were without Christ is helpless. Paul doesn't only call us helpless, though. He actually uses four different words in this passage to describe how sin utterly destroys a soul. He says that we were helpless in verse 6. Also in verse 6, he says we're ungodly. In verse 8, he says we were sinners. And in verse 10, he says we were enemies of God. So Paul says that without Christ, we were helpless, ungodly, sinful enemies of God. 
And for those of you that have been studying Romans with us this year, this comes as no surprise. Throughout this letter, Paul has been painfully clear about the condition of the human soul without Christ. So in chapter 1, you'll remember we were suppressors of the truth, chasing after our every appetite. In chapter 2, we are the worst of hypocrites, claiming to belong to God while living as his enemies. In chapter 3, Paul concluded, there's no one righteous, not even one. All have turned away. What does Jesus do for people like us, helpless, sinful, ungodly, enemies of God, what does he do? It is for these kinds of people that Jesus died. Now, Paul wants to help us understand how incredible it is that Jesus died on behalf of ungodly people like us. So in verse 7, he sets up this comparison that can be a little tricky to understand. Look at it with me. Verse 7, he says, For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person perhaps someone might even dare to die. I think that language might come across to modern ears a little trickier than what Paul intended. Here's what Paul is saying to us. He's saying it's rare that someone would lay down their life for another person. And so if you're going to do it, the person you're laying your life down for should be an incredible person. He says it could be a just person or a righteous person. uh, Or it might be a good person. Right? Your life is too valuable for you to just lay it down for someone who's your enemy. Because this is not what we do for enemies. We lay our lives down or our heroes lay their lives down for, for people who are lovely, wonderful, important to them. Right? You, people lay their lives down for family. They lay their lives down for their fellow servicemen and women. They lay, lay their lives down for innocent victims. But you wouldn't forfeit your life for your enemy. Our posture towards enemies is attack, not self-sacrifice. Your life is far too valuable to lay it down for someone so worthless. But then comes verse 8. Paul says this, but God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's incredible enough that Jesus died for us. It is incomprehensible that Jesus died for helpless, ungodly, sinful enemies of God like us. And why did he do that? Why did the Father give his one and only Son? Why did the Son lower himself all the way to die on a cross? Why did he die for sinners? He did it because of love. Christian, how often have you defined yourself by your mistakes, by your sinful failures? Has your sin made you hesitate to come to Jesus, to worship with your faith family, to pursue repentance, or or to hear the word, or to simply pray? Your assumption is that God must define you as the same sort of failure you believe yourself to be as the enemy continues to remind you you are. God doesn't love you based on your sinlessness. He loved you while you were still a sinner. And he has proven his love for you by giving Jesus to die for you. The love of God doesn't leave us in our helplessness. His love rescues us from our brokenness at a price too great for us to comprehend. And his love for sinners affirms our value and dignity while saving us from sin's guilt and shame. Don't you realize 
that God in eternity looked into time and saw your sin and your fallenness and your brokenness, and he said, I want that woman in my family. I'll do anything for that man to be my child. I will give my son to die for them so that they will be in my family. That's love. It's not a transactional love. As if you do some good for God and then he'll give you some love in return. It is a love that is unmerited, eternal, glorious, healing, patient, sacrificial, and saving. So when you come to Easter Sunday, you can look back at your past, all the pain and disappointment, and you can say with confidence, I am loved and I always have been. Easter is telling you this. God loves you. Easter has another message. The second message is this. It's that our future is determined by Christ's life. Our future is determined by Christ's life. So I want you to imagine that you're in a conversation with Paul, represented here in this passage. And he's just told you that Christ's death on the cross proves God's love for you. And here's how you might push back. You might say, Paul, that's good to know, but uh, I'm actually more concerned about my future than I am about my past. It's good to know that God loved me. It truly is, but I need to know what my future is going to be like. And Paul's response to your pushback is verses 9 and 10. Look at what Paul says there. He says, how much more then... Since we have now been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more having been reconciled will we be saved by his life? These two verses are parallel sentences. They say virtually the same thing, just with a couple of minor differences in the language. Let me show you on the screen here. This visual might help you see the parallels in the verse. And so you can see I broke each sentence into three different parts. Uh, The first part of verse 9, since we have now been justified by his blood, that parallels the first part of verse 10, that while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. Second part of verse 9, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath? Verse 10, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved? Last part of verse 9, through him. And verse 10, through his life. Two sentences saying virtually the same thing. And in these verses, what Paul is doing is he is making an argument from the lesser to the greater. He's trying to answer questions about what we feel might be an uncertain future based on past realities, that past reality of God's love. And he uses our relational status with God to help inform our view of the future. So he's going from the lesser to the greater. The lesser would be this, how did God treat you when you were his enemy? Did he destroy you? Did he crush you? Did he annihilate you? Did he scold you? Did he cast you out? No, what did he just tell us? He loved us, and he sent his son to die for us. So when you were his enemy, how did he treat you? He loved you and paid the price for your sin. That's how God treated his enemy. Now you're his child. How do you think he'll treat his child in the future? 
If this is how he treated his enemy in the past, how will he treat his child in the future? You can have every confidence that the God who loved you and gave his son for you will continue to love you and will hold fast to you through that forever day. He will not let you go. He will save you in the end. Now there's a potentially confusing phrase that's used in both of these verses, and it's the phrase, we will be saved, or we shall be saved. Uh, what does that mean, that we will be saved? I thought we were already saved. I mean, what's Paul saying? Is Paul saying that we're not saved, or that our salvation hangs in the balance? When Christians speak about our salvation, we normally speak of it in the past tense. We'll say something like this. We'll say, I was saved. But when the Bible speaks of our salvation, it speaks of it in multiple tenses. Salvation is past tense. You were saved. That's your justification. The Bible speaks of salvation in the present tense. You are being saved. That's your sanctification. And the Bible speaks of salvation in the future tense. You will be saved. That's your glorification. Christians throughout centuries have spoken of our salvation in this way for a very long time. We've used these same types of theological words to describe the past, present, and future tense of our salvation. Justified, I was saved from sin's penalty. Sanctified, I'm being saved from sin's power. Glorified, I will be saved from sin's presence. So if I'm justified now and being sanctified and will be glorified, that means the best is yet to be. How can we be sure of it? How can we really know that a day of glory awaits those of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ? Well, Paul tells us we will be saved by his life. It's by the resurrection life of Jesus Christ that we have assurance that this future awaits those of us who trust in him. So that means that our experience, we experience for ourselves the power of his resurrection both now and on that final day. Christian, there's so much we do not know about the future. We know nothing of pandemics to come or wars to come or natural disasters to come. We know nothing of what's to come tonight or tomorrow. These things are for God to know and not us. But this one thing, you know with all confidence, with no doubt, with no fear, you will be saved by his life. Your future is set. Your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Your place reserved at the great wedding banquet of the Lamb. You were justified by his blood. You are being sanctified by his power. You will be glorified through his promise because you are reconciled through his death and so you will be saved. Your future is set, my friends. Easter is telling you some important things. It's telling you that your past is defined by God's love. That your future is determined by Christ's life. And finally, our present is filled with heaven's joy. Paul has spoken of our past marked by God's love. And he has described our future that is marked by Christ's life. And now he brings us into this present moment. And he describes the impact of God's love and Christ's life on us here and now. In verse 11, 
we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the word boast might be translated as rejoice in your Bible. Both words mean the same thing, come from the same Greek word. Paul used that word back in chapter 3 of Romans. You might remember that there he forbid it. Where then is boasting? It's forbidden. But what kind of boasting or rejoicing is Paul talking about back in chapter 3? He was talking about the sort of self-justification that I, I would stand before God and say, look what I've done, look what I've accomplished. Here's why you should let me into your kingdom, because I've been good. Not the best, but I've been better than some, and I've, I've done good, and I've avoided bad, and I had good intentions, and look, I've even got this religious pedigree. Look at all the good I've done. Now you should do me well. Paul says we have nothing to boast in because we're helpless, ungodly, sinful enemies of God. Have nothing to boast in at all apart from faith in Christ. But when you are justified by faith in Jesus Christ, then you do have something to boast about. So last week in chapter 5, verse 2, we heard Paul tell us to boast in the hope of glory. And then in verse 3, he told us we can even boast in our afflictions. God is not against us. God is for us. He is strong. He's our protector and guide. So whatever the world throws at us, we can boast in the deliverance we have in God through Christ. And then here in verse 11, he tells us to boast in God again. What's the reason for our rejoicing? Well, it's that through Christ, we have now been reconciled to God. We were His enemies, we were helpless to change it, but God loved us and gave His Son to die for our sin and to give us eternal life. That's the stuff of rejoicing. Pastor and writer John Stott described our rejoicing in this way. He said this, Christian exaltation in God begins with the shame-faced recognition that we have no claim on Him at all, continues with the wondering worship that while we were still sinners and enemies, Christ died for us, and ends with the humble confidence that He will complete the work He has begun. So to exult in God is to rejoice not in our privileges, but in His mercies, not in our possession of Him, but in His of us. And so the life of every Christian is to be marked by unmistakable joy in our Savior. We should be the most joyful people in the world because our joy is anchored in the death and resurrection of Christ who gives hope to all who believe. This kind of joy is not the kind of joy the world gives. The world has settled for counterfeit joy, for a lesser joy. The world is marching in self-centered triumphalism, a sort of self-centeredness that is unbecoming of people of faith, people who follow a crucified Savior. Those who belong to Christ don't exult in themselves, but in Christ alone. We're those who have been reconciled to God. And so while the world rejoices in what the world can give, the church rejoices in what Christ has finished. So brothers and sisters, is the joy of your salvation evident in your words and in your life? And I'm not referring to a plastic smile or some kind of fake happiness. The joy of our salvation transcends every heartache. It endures even through tears. It persists in the dark night of the soul. It is not situational 
or circumstantial. Our joy is anchored in the history-splitting death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Christian, stop being combative and be joyful in Christ. Stop being angry and be joyful in Christ. Stop spewing sin and sing praise to Christ. Stop with your despair and rejoice in Christ. And let's rejoice now like we will on that day described in Revelation chapter 5 when we will join our voices together with all the hosts of heaven and sing blessing and honor and glory and power be to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Brothers and sisters, Easter is speaking. It has something to say to you today. And here's what it's told us. It says your past is defined by God's love. Your future is determined by Christ's life. And your present is filled with heaven's joy. You thought this weekend was about pastels and chocolates, but actually the message of Easter encompasses your whole life, who you were, who you are becoming, and who you are today. And at every major chapter of your life, you are finding God to be love, and to be life, and to be joy. So let us be glad in the Lord. Psalm chapter 70 verse 4 says this, Let all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let those who love your salvation continually say, God is great. So now that you have heard the message of Easter, let the message of your life be, God is great. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, I want to speak to you directly for just a moment. I'm so glad that you've joined us on this day of all days so that you can hear the message of Easter. It's the message of the gospel. It's the good news. In verse 6 of our passage earlier on, you, you heard Paul describe us as helpless. Now, he was speaking there in the past tense of those who believe in Jesus in the present. But for you, without Christ as your Savior, that line would be written in the present tense. You are Without Christ, a helpless sinner. That line alone sounds like heresy to modern ears. Because our culture teaches the inherent goodness of people. But the gospel story begins with the sinfulness of people. And how does God respond to sinful people? Not with hate, but with love. God loves you. Jesus died on the cross in your place for your sin against God. And Jesus is the one and only perfect sacrifice for your sin because he is both fully God and fully human. We see that on display at, the, at his virgin birth, at this, the intersection of his divinity and his humanity. He had to be fully human in order to really live and really die. And he has to be fully God for his death to be effective to save us. He died on a Friday and he rose on a Sunday. And his promise is that if you will turn from your sin and put your trust in him, he will save you. You'll know his love, and you'll have eternal life, and you'll have an eternal reason to rejoice. However, the rejoicing doesn't belong only to you. Are you ready for this? That rejoicing belongs also to the angels in heaven. There's this stunning 
part of the Bible, Luke chapter 15, where Jesus tells us, tells us that when just one person turns to Jesus in faith, there is rejoicing in heaven. Just like a shepherd rejoices when he finds his lost lamb, or a woman rejoices when she finds her lost money, or just like a father rejoices when his lost son returns home. Your salvation will be the reason heaven will rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom you have received this reconciliation. And if you're ready today to give your life to Jesus Christ, then friend, you can do that through a simple prayer. There's not a magic prayer, no magic words I would give you. There's none of that. God knows the intent of your heart. And so if you've been awakened to faith today and you're ready to make Jesus Christ the Lord of your life, to say goodbye to all you were and all your sin and all your self-righteousness and instead set your life to follow Jesus Christ, all you got to do is just tell him. And through a simple prayer and the sincerity of your heart, God knows and will save you and you will be his. And if you want to talk more about it before you leave today, grab me or one of the other pastors or touch base with us this week so that we can talk about the matters of your soul, things of eternal importance. Easter has spoken and you have listened and now let heaven rejoice. Let's pray together. Oh God, you are love and life and wisdom and truth and blessedness. The eternal, the only true good, our God and our Lord, you are our hope and our heart's joy and we praise you. We praise you for your love to helpless sinners like us. We praise you for the life that is ours through the blood of Christ. And we praise you for the joy that abides in us every day until that forever day. Father, Son, Spirit, we praise you and we adore you. It's in Christ's name we pray and all God's people said, Amen.